My name's Chris Hemke, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm sober today by the grace of God and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And because of that, it's been 8,125 days since I had to take a drink, one day at a time. The only one of those days that really matters is today, though. So I haven't had a drink today. And I was up at about 7.25, so I got that much sobriety, because it's one day at a time. So my sponsor tells me that uh, I'm supposed to talk about what happened, what, uh, or actually what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Is that right? He also said, everything that's good that happened to me is because of him. Everything bad is because of Dale. <laughs> Personally, I feel I've been sponsoring both those two loonies for a while now, but you know. So, what it was like. I grew up in, uh, grew up, I, I lived in Northern Ontario for a lot of years. And I started drinking when I was 11 years old because there wasn't a lot else to do. And I remember getting drunk for the first time. I remember it really well. I was out with my mother and her boyfriend, this French-Canadian guy, good guy named Amy Gertin. And he went to visit a friend in the basement of a house where he lived with a wood stove but not much else, and he made hot toddies. And they fed me three or four of them. And man, I couldn't believe how good that felt. It was like just like nothing hurt. I didn't care about anything. I remember sitting at the, the Kresge's lunch counter laughing and giggling, and I was all red in the face. My mother's laughing because I'm drunk, and she said that. He's drunk, look at that. He's having a great time, and I was. And I remember thinking that all these adults are idiots because why don't they do this all the time? Because that's all I wanted to do from then on is I wanted to drink. And it was hard to get alcohol at the age of 11 or 12. So I took to stealing it whenever I could. And uh, I don't know, I never really got drunk much after that because I couldn't get enough of it to get drunk. But I remember when I was about 12 or 13, I ended up at a school dance and a buddy of mine got a Mickey awry. And he had a couple of drinks and got sick. And my other friend got sick, you know, and I got about a third, maybe even half of that Mickey and me. And man, oh man, I went to that dance and I danced with everybody and I could talk to girls and it was just awesome. And the next day at school, everybody said, you were so cool. And I thought, you know, that much made me feel this good than this much. Well, I think you guys know that story, right? So I started chasing that. And I, uh, I joined the Army. And uh, I was in Northern Ontario my whole life, and I couldn't wait to get out. And I did my basic training. I uh, got drunk and kicked a hole in the wall and got charged while I was in basic training with barrack damages. And that was my first go-round with authority, $32.69. I got that bill framed. It's on my wall at home. Not that I remembered it for the next 20 years, but yeah. So I kept on drinking. They asked me where I wanted to go when I got posted. And I said, I want to go to Calgary, Edmonton, near Cold Lake. So they sent me to West Germany. <laughs> I did three and a half years with NATO. And I really, really learned how to drink there. Like, wow, they really got good beer. And man, I drank a lot. I remember that. I drank a lot. And I got all these pictures of people I don't remember and places I don't know. But there's some nice pictures. And uh, I got back to Calgary. I, was, I got married in Germany to a nice Canadian girl and uh, brought her back. I wanted to go to Calgary, Amphitheater, Cold Lake. They told me Petawawa. So I told them, you know, let me go to Calgary. And that's where I wound up. And I was here for, I don't know, five years or so. And I managed to get myself released from the Canadian forces. You won't believe this. 
but it had to do with drinking. I, I was shocked. Apparently, you shouldn't punch out your commanding officer when you're out in the field, when you're drunk. But if he's drunk as well and he's out of bounds, they really won't charge him because the general will take his rank and everything else. And they won't charge you because then they'd have to talk about it. So they release you under medical, uh, a medical for, what was it? Due to circumstances beyond his control, Corporal Hemke is unable to achieve and maintain a BMI of less than 30, which was a lie. I was 29.5. So I was pretty upset and I fought that for seven years. Then I got a lawyer. And instantly, two weeks later, I got a settlement. Just like that, I got two and a half years pay. It was over $60,000. Uh, sounds good, eh? 60 grand? Yeah, but the lawyer took 15,000. And income tax took 18,000. And unemployment took 16,000. And I got enough to buy a new motorcycle for eight grand. So I was happy, I was good, like I won. <laughs> so I just kept drinking. So that culminated in, uh, I had a beautiful house in Cedarbrae. Before I was 30 years old, it was paid off. I had a car, truck, couple motorcycles, 2.5 children, no dog. And uh, I ended up in a camper at my shop on McLeod Trail by myself. And I'm trying to figure this out, but it kind of thing, I think like in the big book, it talks about this, where Bill ends up moving out. He ends up in his mother-in-law's house. Whoa, in his mother-in-law's house. And then he loses his job because of a fight and the the bank forecloses, the mother-in-law dies, everybody's sick. Nevertheless, he still thought he had things under control. Well, so did I. I had the camper. I wasn't homeless, so I can lord it over the people that were, right? I had a camper, a shitty camper with no water, but I had power if I plugged it into my shop. But that's where I ended up. And I remember sitting on McLeod Trail in my camper with a big jug of rye. And I had, uh, I had the broken jug pub and I had Hooters restaurant in the back alley right there. And I could walk to them, they were like half a block. I, I never did, I would drive my bike or whatever, but I could have. <laughs> and uh, I thought I had the world by the short and curlies. I had it aced. I was, I was living the life, right? Hadn't seen my kids in a while. Didn't want to talk to my ex-wife anyways. So what do I need, right? And then my wife, my wife there, she, she actually put my son into a treatment center. And I was, I was aghast. <laughs> I didn't, like, holy smokes, I got to get him out of there. My poor son, he doesn't need to be there. Hope he's not talking about me. So I had to get him out of there. And uh, I remember I, I tried uh, talking to the cops, and I talked to a real estate lawyer, and I talked to everybody who would talk to me. And I was sitting across Glenmore Trail, spying it out with the glasses, planning how to do this. I was in the military. I had a team assembled of a couple of his buddies who were going to bust him out of this place. And then I, I got a hold of a guy who apparently was in AA, and he used to be uh, running an adult treatment center. And he suggested something that really appealed to me. He said, well, do you really think that your son has a problem? Are you absolutely convinced he doesn't? And I'm the kind of guy that will take the other side of any argument. Just ask me. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, it's possible, but it's so highly unlikely, right? So he said, well, why don't you go in there and just lie to them and tell them whatever they want to hear. And I thought, yeah, that, yeah, of course. Why didn't I think of that? Brilliant. So that's what I did. So I went in there and I got to see my son. And I remember going in there and it was his birthday and he was 16. And I looked at him and it was like nothing looking back at me. And he didn't say, dad, get me out of here. Dad, I, don't, I shouldn't be here. It was like he was broken and I could see it. 
So I decided, as a good dad, I'm going to quit drinking to show my son a real good example. And I started going to this treatment center because they wanted the parents there two nights a week and they had some kind of cycle baggable crap and I think it was called Al-Anon or something. And, and I, yeah, okay, whatever. I sat there and like, uh, geez, they get out there like 10 or 11 or 12 and it's like, whew, I still make last call. So I quit drinking, I quit smoking dope, I quit all of it and things got worse. Things got a lot worse. My life got worse. It was like stark raving sober. So things came to a head and I was about to lose it. And I decided that maybe, just maybe, I might have a problem. I seem to remember explaining that to Lawrence there, my sponsor. He wasn't my sponsor at the time. I explained to him for a couple hours that um, I really didn't have a problem. <laughs> and he said, it's not really about that. It's about how it affects your life. So I tried to explain it to another guy named Randy. And Randy just kind of said, well, it's about how it affects your life. And I said, I, I made that noise. I'm, I'm sure you guys know that noise. The noise that an alcoholic makes when they have an epiphany, a moment of clarity. We actually get it. We understand. It just all comes together and you make that noise. Huh. <laughs> so I said, okay, take me to a meeting. So he did. And, uh, you know, of course, being a grandiose alcoholic, I ended up, it's kind of funny, but to keep it short, I'll just say that I chaired that first meeting, <laughs> which was amusing, but that's how I went to my first meeting. So I started going to meetings. I was also going to Al-Anon, and I really liked Al-Anon because, you know, you could still drink. <laughs> that didn't last too long. I had to get honest. I stopped drinking, and it was on the 24th of June, 2001, when I had my last drink. But it took a couple weeks or maybe even a month or two before I actually got into the program. And when I got in, my sponsor, Lawrence, was working with me and trying to stay ahead of me in these steps. And uh, we're both going at it. We got into a big book study and we're starting to learn about this stuff. And I got to step three and I was having some issues because step two was, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, but he hates me. So I just hate him back. I, I don't recommend that method. Um, it wasn't working for me, but you know. So I ended up, I was on a bike trip down south down across the border and I was coming back and I'm struggling with this whole step three and step two and kind of getting it all messed up and and I managed to smoke a deer at 60 miles an hour on my bike without wearing a helmet and I killed the deer with my face that's why I look like this I know quite handsome still <laughs> but I uh I remember laying there on the ground thinking oh man this is gonna hurt when I get up and this guy comes running over and he says don't worry man I'm an off-duty medic from Kalispell. I'll look after you. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And then this car going the other way stops, and this lady comes running out. She's got the same black bag. She says, I'm an off-duty medic from Missoula. I'll take charge here. So within minutes, I had two medics working on me, and they call an ambulance. That's when I start to panic. Because I'm in the U.S., and it's the first time I've ever gone down there where I didn't get medical insurance. This is going to cost me everything and then some. I'm going to be in debt for the rest of my life. What am I going to do? So the first thing I do was made them take my leathers off because I wouldn't let them cut them. <laughs> so I get this stuff off. They get me in the ambulance and I'm like just panicking. And the guy looks at me and says, well, we get you Kalispell in about an hour and a half. But we get you to Cardston up in Alberta in 45 minutes. Take me to Canada. So somehow, I'm not sure how, my motorcycle, me, and all my stuff ended up in Cardston. I don't know how it got across the border. I don't know what they did. We never even stopped at the border. We just blew through. And I limped out of the hospital the next day. 
My buddy came and got me. Took me about $180 to get my bike back on the road. I just needed a fender. That's all that was really wrong with it. And that was it. I, on the other hand, was banged up pretty bad. I went to the treatment center because it was Tuesday night. And I walked in there with a stick. My face is swollen out to here. I can't wear my glasses. You can't see my ear. My eye is swollen shut and I'm a bloody mess. And it took about two nurses two hours to dress my wounds every morning because uh, I was wearing full leathers. But I didn't have my liner in and the zipper took me from here to here. And I ripped everything off. Ripped my nipple off. Good news, it grew back. And according, according to Dr. Lumbly, in Black Diamond, there should be no problem with lactation. I'm not sure what that means. So I actually, uh, my daughter took a look at me, started crying. So did half the staff. I guess I was pretty messy. But I made a point that I was in. And um, I'd been looking for a high, higher power, and I just about met him. So I got step two. <laughs> and it was like, you didn't have to shout. <laughs> so I got it. And then... Uh, I went to another meeting, and uh, I went to many meetings. But I remember being at this meeting where there's this guy. He showed up, and he was. I, I pulled up to the parking lot, and there's this car sitting there, a little pot, a little Pontiac GTO or something. It's got all the ground effects kits. It's all blue and white stripes, and it's got the flare on the back. And I, who let the dogs out, right? I go upstairs, and I spot the guy who's driving that car. He's got like a thousand dollar suit on. He's got all this bling. Look at me now. <laughs> He's got all these gold chains and rings and stuff on and the spiky hair. And, and I look and I think, oh, yeah, that's him. So they started off the meeting. It was step three. And they asked this guy to share. Jimmy B. <laughs> Short for Jimmy Big Book. I didn't know that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Jimmy spoke on step three. And the first thing he said was, you cannot be stuck on step three. You either make a decision and move on to step four or you don't. And you stay at step two. You can't be stuck on three. Either make a decision or don't. The end. And it, it hit me. And again, I made that incredible noise. Huh. So yeah, I went to my sponsor. He said, yeah, good, let's go, step four. And I'm thinking, yeah, right away. I just gotta, I just gotta figure out where I'm gonna do it and who I'm gonna do it with. And he suggested step four and five, I should go to Mount St. Francis because that's where everybody from Calgary was going then. Everybody was going to Mount St. Francis and doing it with a priest or whether they fell asleep or not, etc. So I said, okay. And then we went for pizza at lunch. And I remember uh, his sponsor at the time was a guy named Jerry. I like Jerry, not like Dale. Um, <coughs> Jerry didn't ask too much. <laughs> so Jerry, uh, I said to Jerry, uh, yeah, you know, I got to get that number off you for Mount St. Francis. So I can make an appointment and do my step five and off to finish off my step four. So we, we finish off our lunch and we head out the door and he hands me his phone. He says, hey, it's for you. I said, what? He says, yeah, it's for you. So I answered the phone. This lady says, Mount St. Francis, how can I help you? <laughs> so I booked my appointment to do my step five for the following Tuesday. It was a long weekend. So I did my step four that weekend. So I started out, I had a big book, and I had a uh, vision for you, and I had uh, a whole bunch of sheets from the Joe and Charlie thing, and I had the big book, and I had the 12 and 12, and man, there's a lot of craziness going on there. I ended up with just the big book and those Joe and Charlie sheets, and that's how I did my step four. And I got it all down with many phone calls to Lawrence on that weekend. I don't know if he had much of a weekend. I had a hell of a one. But Monday morning, I went out and I did my step five with Father, Father Brian. And I remember I walked in there, and he asked me, 
have you done a thorough step four? And I said, yeah, to the absolute best of my abilities. And Lawrence gave me a really good tip. One of the things they like to do out there is they like to burn your step four when you're done with it. And he said, here's a tip, make a copy. Because <laughs> you got to do a step eight. <laughs> so I, I remember at about one o'clock in the morning, on Sunday morning, very early, or Monday morning, I guess, I was at a Kinko's on McLeod Trail, trying to use the self-service machine, fending off this young lady who wanted to help me. <laughs> Please step back. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody was going to see that but me. So anyways, I went out there and I did my step five. And I remember when I, when I was done, I, I just can't believe how I felt after letting all that crap go that I'd been dragging around for 38 years. I drank for 28 years. I was actually 39 years old when I did my step five. And it was unbelievable. And I swear, I got in my car and I drove up the little hill and halfway back to Calgary before I started it. It was just levitating. Like, I, unbelievable. I understand when people talk about a pink cloud because I was on one. And I remember Father Brian was very, you know, he said, you know, you should actually do your step six, seven, eight, get on the nine right away, which I took to mean three weeks. So <laughs> that, that cloud felt so good. I was good. I don't think I needed the rest of the steps. Turns out I did. So yeah, I got on to the rest of it. I had that list already, right? Six and seven, and I had to become willing. That was, that was a little more difficult because Every time I thought about doing amends with my ex-wife, I became unwilling. <laughs> that was a tough one. And, you know, I'm hearing stuff like, don't tell her you're sorry. You're wrong. Tell her you're wrong. Just kill me. <laughs> Anyways, I ended up getting them done. I got into that. I, I did what I was supposed to do, what I had to do. And the best thing about my sponsor is that he never told me what to do, although I continually asked him, what do I do? He never told me what to do, which is good, because when somebody tells me what to do, <laughs> right, I'm not doing that, I'm going to do the opposite, because unfortunately, I'm a bit of an ass. So he just told me what he did. So I had to do what he did just to prove him wrong. 20 years later, I'm still trying to prove him wrong. We have a deal, though. If I can find a good enough reason to go out drinking, not only will he buy the first round, he'll go with me. So... I've been coming to these meetings all these years, and I've been listening to you people, and it's starting to piss me off. I hear people say things like, my daughter went to Honolulu, and she got carried away by a tidal wave, so I thought I'd better go to a meeting. My house burned down and killed my children, so I thought I'd better go to a meeting. I lost my $1 million business. I have nothing left, so I thought I'd better go to a beat. Jesus, will nothing drive you to drink? Because I would really thought I would like to go out drinking. But I kept coming to these meetings and working these steps and got into big book studies and then more big book studies and more meetings. And we started doing big book studies. And then I remember one of my sponsees, because I ended up sponsoring people, he said we should do a big book study. So I'm doing a big book study on Tuesday with Glenn. I'm doing another one on Thursdays with Lawrence. And Lawrence is helping out for, with Glenn on Tuesday. And Glenn is helping out with Lawrence on Thursday, and I'm doing both of them. <laughs> so we did a lot of big book studies. But you know, it really helped me stay sober. It really helped me, it really helped me stay in touch with the book. Because on my own, I don't know shit. All I know is the big book, and that's what works. That's the program. 
So I study that book. And I talk about that book. And I thump that book. And if you don't want to work out of the book, go do it your way. This is what works for me and works for the first 100. Work for Bill. Work for Bob. Work for Lawrence. Work for Austin. Work for all these guys at those tables over there. If it works for them, shit, I got a chance. So I continued in that vein, and I got to those amends. And I remember I, uh, I was having a hard time with that ex-wife thing. It took me almost three years to do my amends with my ex-wife. And it got to the point where it was like I'd done a lot of ugly amends, and they all worked out. You know, I always felt so much better when I did them. And I remember I had, uh, we were talking about this today, I think, about how I, uh, I had broken up with this girl that I was totally in love with after two months. And uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> and uh, I actually called, I rode out to Black Diamond to see Cal crying. That's why bikers wear dark glasses. And uh, I got out there and we talked for a while and I got on my bike and I'm coming back into town. And I thought, man, I feel like crap. I feel so crappy. This, I cannot feel worse. I should do amends with my ex-wife right now. I can't feel any worse. What the hell? So I went to her house and I banged on the door, my old house, <laughs> uh, that I had paid for before I was 30 years old. Nice little house in Cedarbury there. And uh, way better than the camper. <laughs> and uh, she opens the door and she looks at me and says, what do you want? <laughs> so I'd like to talk to you for a couple of minutes. She says, well, you should have made an appointment. I said, okay, I'll leave you alone. I'll, I'll give you a call and I'll make an appointment. I'll come back. She says, well, you're here now, come in. <laughs> so I went in and I stood in, the living room, in her living room and I did my amends right there, and I told her I was a lousy husband and a terrible father, and I wasn't a team player, and I didn't treat her right, and I was wrong to do those things, and I was absolutely wrong. And she says, well, you got a lot of nerve to come here and so let's say those things to me. Now get out. So I got out, and I couldn't believe it. It was like, that's it? And yeah, that was it. So I went down the end of the step that I built, and <laughs> I sat on my bike, and I lit a cigar, and I'm sitting there, and my daughter comes up, and she says, how you doing, Dad? And I said, you know, I'm doing really good. And I really was. Because I didn't have that hanging over me anymore. It was gone. That weight was lifted. I no longer owed my wife, my ex-wife, anything. And it was like, yeah, that's it. And it, it still boggles my mind why I wait to do these things. And then I think, yeah, because you're a stubborn idiot. <laughs> That's also an alcoholic. Oh, yeah, right. So I guess whenever we look at things, we usually say, like at the 12 steps, wow, look at that. There's got to be a way, a much more difficult way to do these. That's too simple. Yeah, we, we got to make it more complicated. But it's not. It's not easy, but it's simple. So I did my amends with my ex-wife, and that was, that was the big one. And at that point, I had 10, 11, 12, and I'd, I'd been doing step 10 on a very regular basis. Continued, right? Day in, day out, hour by hour, day by day, doing step 10, which is four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And that kept me sober. But my life started getting better at this point because I started to enlarge my spiritual life through 10, 11, and 12. Some people say they're the maintenance step. Well, I was a mechanic for most of my life, and I don't want to maintain, I want to grow. And I like the growth steps because I need to enlarge my spirituality or I'm going to go back out drinking. I can't stay where I am. I got to keep moving forward. And that's what 10, 11, and 12 are about. 
So that's what I continued to do. And I started watching these guys that I'm hanging out with that got 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And I watch what they're doing and I'm trying to think, how come I'm not like that? And I'll give you an example. I was dating this girl and she said, she uh, came down in the elevator with this guy. Poof, I'm suspicious. And uh, he was talking about how he was staying in the building and he was looking after his friend of the family that he calls his aunt, but it's not really his aunt because she's in the hospital getting chemotherapy and blah, blah, blah. And she ends up the story with, I should find out what unit he's in. What? Why do you need to know what unit he's in? And she looked at me like I'm an idiot. And she says, so when his aunt comes home, I can ask her if she needs a hand with the groceries. And I never thought of that. And I thought, how come I don't know that? So I went to my buddy Helmut. He's got, what's Helmut got, 110 years? Long, long time. And I went to Helmut and I said, Helmut, this girl, I was dating her. And she said this guy in the elevator and blah, 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 and the whole story. And it all came out and I told him everything. And I said, why do you think she wanted to know what unity was in? And he looks at me and he says, probably so she can ask the old lady if she needs help with her groceries. How does he know that? Why don't I know that? So I started asking guys like him and guys like Dale, well, what do you do in the morning? Well, I do some readings. Why well, do a reading? No, 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 I do some readings. And they read like five books. And they read three different ones. And they read this and they read that and they meditate and they stop. And well, I get up and I say a prayer, I read something and I go to work. Well, apparently you need to do more than that. So I started doing that. They didn't tell me to do that. They just told me what they had done. So I started doing that. And I can't believe it worked, but it did. And my life started getting better again. <coughs> Excuse me. So I looked into this a little further, and now I've got three books that I read every morning on top of the big book. And I read, I read three, four passages out of Daily Reflections plus the Daily Read. I read another one called 24 Hours a Day. I read another one, an Al-Anon book. It's called Courage to Change, and that's where I start. And then I do a minimum of five minutes of meditation. Unless I'm really, really busy, then I do 10 minutes. Because that's what I need to do. And then I go to work. And I work till lunchtime, and I go home for lunch. I live seven minutes from where I work. Four and a half on the bike. So I go home for lunch, and I relax. And I'll usually do a reading, and then I'll turn the TV on and watch something I don't give a shit about and do nothing and just relax. And then I go back to work, and I don't have to rip any customers' heads off. It's really good. It really calms me down because I work in a service industry. And apparently, my boss wants me to be nice to these customers. That's why he pays me. He has to pay me a lot. I work in Forest Lawn. <laughs> right in the middle of the hood. I live there, too, so I'm one of the hoodites now. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's one of those deals where this is my job and I have to do it to the best of my ability. And I remember, this is a while back, but I, I was quitting this job and I was really mad. I wasn't happy at this job. I wasn't, I wasn't liking it. And it got worse because I, uh, I started looking for a job online and I found the job I was doing being advertised online. So apparently those ungrateful SOBs didn't want me there. So now I'm pissed. Now I want to go in, stomp in, quit, maybe kick the boss's ass, stomp out, and leave them in the lurch. So I called Lawrence. He says, call Dale. You know what Dale says to me? <coughs> he 
He says you got to be 110% grateful that you have a job. You go in there, you work your ass off, you do everything you can. You don't take so much as a paperclip, and you go home and thank God for having a job. And I didn't want to hear that. And I said, what am I supposed to do? He says, well, you go in there, and you ask him, is it too late to save my job? Have you decided that you're going to get rid of me, or what should I do? And I didn't want to do that either. <laughs> and I cursed, and I swore, and I stomped my feet. I didn't cry. <clears throat> and I went in, and I said, you know, can I talk to you? And he says, well, give me a couple minutes. And he calls me in the office. What's up? I said, well, are you determined to get rid of me? Is there anything I can do to save my job? And he says, well, you want to talk about this? I said, I think we need to. So he sits me down and he says, you're, you're not fitting in with the team. And I don't think it's going to work out. So I'd like you to stay an extra month because uh, I, like I respect your work ethic. And I, I like what you're doing with the customers. But you're not fitting in with the other two people, so I'm going to have to let you go. But I'd like you to stay the extra month. I'll get you to sign something to say that you're not going to go after me for severance because it's going to be over the three months. And I'd like to keep her for that extra month. And that'll give you time to look for a job as well. <sighs> well what are you saying to that, right? That killed me. That just about killed me. Dale was right. Again. So I, I did that. I stayed the extra month. I signed the paperwork. He gave me a, uh, like an exit interview. He gave me an exit termination letter. I could use the termination letter as a reference. And I had an exit interview with his partner. And he asked me things like, well, do you think you'd ever come back to work here? Would you consider it? Things like that. And I said, well, not with current management. <laughs> and he said, no, I understand. But thank you for that. You know? And at the end of it, I got to say, it was the nicest calmest, most politest way that I was ever shit-canned. So I learned a lot from that. I think I learned a lot more from that than I ever learned from leaving any other job before or since because it, it paid off and it just, it left me feeling good about what I did and what I didn't do. So that's the way my life has gone. I learned these things, how normal people do things because I didn't know much about normal people. You don't learn really any good skills for that kind of stuff, customer service things in the military. I remember the Sergeant Major coming down one day and he says, yeah, look at that, there's maintenance down there. At least they know how to fix a truck. Not too many people want 20 minutes to drill, drill in the department store first thing in the morning, right? They don't need to march around and do stuff like that. They need people that can talk to people, be nice to people. Not my number one skill, but I'm working on it. So. I've learned things in AA that I don't know how I, else I ever would have learned them because there's no courses on this kind of stuff. How to be a human being because I really didn't know that. I didn't need to. I got by. Just like the year I turned in 14 T4 slips. That was in sobriety. After 14 T4 slips, that's more than a job a month. I was starting to think, is it me? <laughs> so today... I've had the same job for two and a half years. Um, the job I had before that, I was at for seven and a half years. And I left on my own terms. I left in, you know, I had a good relationship with the owner. Uh, did not have a good relationship with his son, which is unfortunate. But principles before personalities, but sometimes you, not everybody's in the program. And it ended up that um, I really liked working for his dad, but his dad was going to retire and the son was going to take over. And I wasn't going to stay. Well, he was going to fire me. So <laughs> he didn't like me. And he, he said that. He says, I don't like you. And we don't get along. And I said, okay, I understand that. So I left. 
and they paid me out and it was perfect i got all the severance and actually a little extra they did me real well and i said you know rick it was really nice working for you i appreciate the opportunity thank you much goodbye cam and that was it <laughs> so i got this other job and it worked out really well and it's funny we're talking at uh, lunch today we're talking about you know is money the answer and yeah it's a lot easier to cry yourself to sleep in the back of a Mercedes than sitting on the road beside your bicycle. But money isn't everything. My last job at that, that, that I was working at, the last year I was there, I made $74,000 with bonus and everything else. This job, I made 42000 last year. But I'm com comfortable. I got a truck. I got a motorcycle. Actually, I got four. But that's because I sold two. <laughs> People are always curious, why do you have four motorcycles? Because I sold two. And I'm not really rich, I'm just irresponsible. <laughs> but none of those are financed, they're all paid for, right? And I got a place to live, it's a walkout basement, meh. But it's a big double garage <laughs> with all full of motorcycles. I got a decent job, you know, I, it pays me enough for me. And it also has a, a savings thing where they contribute to your RSP up to a maximum of 1500 a year, so free money. And, it's got excellent benefits. I stand before you now being able to stand this long because this is not my original need. It's, I believe, t titanium and steel. And while I was off for two and a half months, I got short-term disability. And uh, I was pretty amazed by that because I'd never had anything like that. And it turns out, after the first month, I had to pay for my own disability, and it was $73. And what they gave me was $593 and change a week. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty good trade. <laughs> so they looked after me. And again, it's one of those deals where all I have to do is show up in the morning, do my job to the best of my ability, be nice, and I get to go home and sleep in my own bed every night. And I only work four days a week. I get Wednesdays off. That works out pretty well for me. I don't work weekends. I get Wednesdays off. I spent three weeks in Arizona. Unfortunately, it was at Cal's place, but yeah, I had a good winter. So my life today is so incredibly different from what I had when I was living in the camper, trying to figure out where I was gonna get my next jug of rum and wash it down with a bag of weed or whatever. So I remember doing those things, but when I look back on that, it doesn't, sink, it doesn't seem like I'm that guy because I don't wanna do those things anymore. I don't wanna be in the camper. I wanna go to Black Diamond or Turner Valley and see my daughter who turned 37 yesterday. And she's got a five-year-old and a 14-month-old. And they want to see their grandpa. They look forward to it. I was out there at Christmas Eve, and my daughter, she gives me a motorcycle every year, a little toy one. And she gave me a Lego one, and I opened that up, and my grandson was all over me. Grandpa, we have to put this together right now. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> so that's how I spent Christmas Eve, probably the best Christmas I've ever had. And that's pretty cool, because i got to say, my daughter wasn't coming to see me when I was living in the camper. She wasn't around. She didn't want anything to do with me. And that's changed. And I got a good relationship with her. I got a good relationship with my boss, with my coworkers, with the friends that I have in this program and outside of it. When I wiped out that deer, there was a buddy of mine that I used to drink with that came down to pick me up. And that was over 20 years ago. And we're still good friends. We have dinner at least once a week. We still ride motorcycles together. His wife, his wife thinks a lot more of me now because I drank with this guy. He's not one of us. He can't really drink. 
he really can't. Poor guy. I remember I picked him up. I used to spark up a fatty, have a beer or two, go pick him up. He lived around the corner. Take him out. He'd be pissed drunk. And then I'd take him back and drop him off. One night he didn't make it from the sidewalk to the, to the door with his pants. He made it. The pants didn't. Wallet, everything laying on the front lawn. His wife had harsh words for me. It's like, I didn't know he couldn't walk. <laughs> he was walking when he got out of the truck, sort of. <laughs> like, you know, Sheila really cares about me now. And that's something else. I used to think that I was a bit of a sensitive guy. And uh, my buddy Scott, his wife Sheila, she's a sensitive person. You know why she's sensitive? Sensitive people, they do sensitive type things. She remembers my birthday and makes me a cake. She invites me for Christmas. She invites me for Thanksgiving. You know, she's nice to me. She always asks me how I'm doing. How are the kids? How's things going? And she talks to me like a human being. I'm not like that. And I thought I was sensitive, but it turns out I'm not sensitive. I'm a touchy bastard. Who knew? Not me. But people would say things and it would hurt me. And I didn't know how to show that. So I'd just get mad. And when I get angry, People do what I say, or they get out of my way. They don't, they don't usually mess with me, because I do angry really well. And I remember having long talks with my sponsor about what's below the anger. What a stupid thing to say, what's below the anger? You're really pissing me off. And then I'm sitting there at a stupid restaurant crying. People are out, like, Jesus, I'm turned into a weep sack. But this all started when I started walking across through Sears in my leathers, carrying a helmet, and I saw this stupid wall of TVs. And it was one of them long distance commercials on. Reach out and touch someone. And I'm looking at this little girl trying to call her grandpa. And I start crying. I start leaking in Sears. And it's like, and I knew something was wrong with me. But I didn't know what. And I had to do something about it. Because I'm sitting there on the cloud trail. Looking at the traffic go by past my camper. And I got a big bottle of rum and some other stuff. And everybody's gone because I told them I was out. And I got tears running down my face and I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't figure it out. I got a hole right in the middle of me. And I couldn't live like that. So I ended up calling Lawrence. 40 minutes later, we're both crying. And he still pisses me off. And every time we go someplace where they say, is anybody looking for a sponsor? I look at him and I put up my hand. Because when I asked him to be my sponsor, he said, yeah, I could be your temporary sponsor. I'm not looking for a temporary sponsor. He says, well, I could be your sponsor till I die. I could be your sponsor till I die. Either way, it's temporary. So I still have my temporary sponsor 22 and a half years later. And uh, I don't know, I'm looking for a new one. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that before. <laughs> the worst thing Lawrence ever did was go and get Dale as a sponsor. That's just not working out for me. Dale has stuff he wants you to do. Well, you're not my sponsor. And then like five minutes later, I get a call from Lawrence. Hey, <laughs> what? So now I'm on the 12-step list, and I'm still doing big book studies, and I'm sponsoring guys. And actually, I'm really loving it, but don't tell those clowns, right? <laughs> Life is good today. And it's a direct result of the work that I've been able to do in Alcoholics Anonymous with the support of other people in this program that are actually doing the steps. Because if you're not doing the steps, 
you are going to drink and you are going to die. If you think you can go it on your own, hats off to you. I don't know anybody like that that's still alive. I still haven't got that call from Mexico. Chris, we figured it out. We're getting drunk on tequila. Come on down. I haven't got that call yet. Nobody's made it. Either you do the steps or you die. You get covered up or locked up. And locked up doesn't look good either because you end up in that Pinocchio place. You go down there and see the wet heads. Not great. I don't want to go that way. I want to go nice and quiet in my sleep. Not screaming like the passengers in my dad's car. <laughs> so for me, it's pretty simple. As long as I do this, I get to live. And I get to live a really good life. But I have to do the work. And it is work for me. None of this stuff really comes natural yet. I have to work at it. I have to think, man, do I have to go to a meeting? But then the other side of that is, well, it's ugly and miserable and dark. Would I go get a beer? <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm putting my boots on. Because <laughs> no matter what, I would go out and get a drink. And I swear, like, it just seems, if we could put a quarter of the time and energy into going to meetings that we used to do into drinking, we'd be sitting here doing this in New York, right? We'd be running the New York office if we put that much effort into it. But we don't. We seem to do everything with enthusiasm except the steps. And that's the really the only thing we need to do is the 12 steps. And if you can get through that, everything else falls into, space, into place. Once the spiritual malady is cleared up, everything else is going to start to work. And if it works for a dumbass like me, it'll work for the smart, good-looking people in this room and guys like Cal. <laughs> so I don't know how much time I've been here, but I'm getting tired and I'm sweaty and I'm thirsty. And this is probably the best-looking the best looking group of really sick people I've seen in a long time. So thanks, uh, thanks for the committee getting me out here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me. And I'd especially like to thank Dale for giving them my name and number. Um, uh, my home group is Recovery Group in Calgary. We're on uh, McLeod Trail South. It's on the app. You can find it out. We got uh, Monday, 5 o'clock, Tuesday, and Thursday, 7.30, Saturday morning, 9 a.m. And we got a ladies' meeting at 11.30 on Saturdays. It gets about 30 ladies in there. It's a brand new room. Come on out. Um, it's, in, it's in the app. We're starting a big book study on the 3rd of October. My sponsor, Lawrence, and I. It's going to be a Joe and Charlie style big book. We're going to run about 12 weeks. And I think that's about enough out of me. I don't really know too much about AA, so I'm just going to pass instead. <laughs>